about race and othering and empathy, along with our co-host, Dr. Brian Goff, Dr. Jenna Lejeune, and we're welcoming Mitchell S. Jackson back to Portland. He's the author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. I love Mitchell's writing. His first book, Residue Years, was just one I was recommending to everyone who would listen. But this one, wow, it's getting all kinds of critical acclaim. He won the Whiting Award and the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. His honors include fellowships from TED, the Lannan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and Penn. And he's also a writer, clinical associate professor of writing at New York University. But what I want to say most is welcome home, Mitchell Jackson. Thank you. Thank wow. You. All of the reviews for Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, are off the charts. I bet it's beyond your wildest dreams to have your story resonate with so many people. Uh, well, I dreamed it. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's great to see some of the dreams come into fruition, for sure. When you look at this cover, what does this evoke for you, all of these pictures of these men in your life? Um, you know, I was in, uh, where was I? Wisconsin the other night, and um, I around people, I didn't know anyone in the room, and uh, they but they had like a, one of those kind of stand-up things uh, they use in the bookstores, and it was behind me. And the, one of the first things I said to the group was like, wow, it just occurred to me that I'm bringing my family with me everywhere I go. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so when I see that cover, what I see are memories mm. of, uh, you know, between different family members. And like, I actually think about home every time. Mm. So I'm carrying it home with me all over the country, which is a really good feeling. For people that don't know, Mitchell grew up here in uh, Portland, Oregon, yeah. in, and this is where this show is broadcast from. Yeah. Today, you're going to go back to that neighborhood yes. and walk it with some other journalists. Yes. What do you expect to feel now knowing that your story is out, that people in your neighborhood may have read it uh -huh. or will be reading it? Do you yeah. feel more exposed, more a part of? Um, well, luckily, I wrote about the neighborhood in um, fiction with the residue years. And so um, I think people that like know me specifically, they are kind of already aware that this is something that I write about and they, they know kind of my perspective on it. But I think this book might have a chance to reach a wider audience. Um, and so uh, that gives me a great joy to kind of keep alive my memory of home. And, and I was reading um, uh, Toni Morrison's new essay collection, and she defined home as the memory that you share with, uh, like, your family and your friends. Mm. And uh, I think that's really what I'm talking about, right, are these memories that I share with the people, my community. In this book, you take on the topic of the way you were raised, mm -hmm. the expectation of being black, yeah. the um, the role of masculinity. Mm -hmm. uh, you combine it with poetry, with history. Yeah. The, the format for me as a fellow writer is so beautiful. Thank you. It, may, it makes me want to cry when I think <laughs> about how you bird this because you do it in a way that is very non-traditional. Yes. Did you work with other people to determine how that was going to be or was that something that you felt was important to relay every aspect of your history and your family's history into this book? 
Um, well, yes, I, d- I definitely worked with people uh, to, to, to shape it. Um, I think the book kind of had different iterations, like in the beginning. Um, well, I knew going in that I wanted to write essays. So I always imagined that each what maybe people consider chapters were like essays. And in that case, they were like explorations of an idea. And so I would have the idea and then I would ask myself, OK, do I have an experience that in some way illuminates this idea or does one of my family members have something that illuminates this idea. So I, I went in with that. And then uh, later on, uh, once the title kind of crystallizes survival math, that's when I thought about these survival files, which are the men on the cover. I took photographs of them. And then I also asked them the same question, what's the toughest thing that you've survived? And then I write their stories as second-person narrative. So that came after I was already thinking about survival math. And then really, really late in the process, um, I was... I mean, about to hand in what I thought was a last draft. And I was like, oh, I want to be able to frame these kind of really particular stories about a community in the kind of national conversation about race and class and Mm. all of those things. And so I was like, well, I should take the documents that everyone loves and venerates and use them to frame it. And that's where the poems came from. So those are actually centos. And the poems are found lines from... Declaration of Independence, Gettysburg Address, um, Plessy versus Ferguson. So there are 10 documents that I use to kind of frame it. So when you look at the cover and it says all American family, that's really me trying to critique this idea of Americanness. I love this. Um, we were talking last week about as all white people in this room, how mm-hmm. difficult this conversation is because there is now a, a kind of tense feeling in the air if you even bring up race. Mm-hmm. And so I want you to guide us because I always just want to say, look, I'm probably going to offend some mm-hmm. somebody by something that I say. It's mm-hmm. probably not a safe place with me at the microphone. Uh-huh. But how would you encourage us to go forward in a real and honest conversation about yeah. race where we don't have to feel like, Ugh, yeah. am I even supposed to weigh in? Yeah. Well, two things that uh, I've been thinking about the last two days, which are the days that I've been here. Uh, one, I was like, I have been reading about a fair amount of like white supremacist rhetoric and action in Portland. I don't really remember it that much when I was young, but I also wasn't paying attention to the news in that way. And we were pretty insulated in our community uh, or maybe segregated in our community is a better way to Both. think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both. And then I've also been thinking, how could it be? Because I also think there are like if you if you ask most people, they would say that Oregon's like the home of liberals. Right. So I'm like, how could it be that both white supremacists and liberals could coexist in this place? Mm. And both of them think it's like a bastion for for their ideology. So that's a question that I would really want to pose to like white people. Like Mm -hmm. how what is it? What's the commonality that makes this a great place for both of those kind of ideals? Wow. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Jenna. I think I mean kind of hard to speak to these big general social yeah. issues um but just as a human being mm-hmm. I, I think homogeneity is a common factor mm-hmm. i mean as somebody as a, a white woman who mm-hmm. also would like to think of myself as a liberal or mm-hmm. progressive mm-hmm. you know one of the things i learned is it's it's really easy for me to be quote unquote liberal and progressive when everybody around me thinks and looks and mm. does exactly what I think and look and do. Yeah. And I think that type of insulated homogeneity mm-hmm. also breeds things like white supremacy. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that there are there are commonalities yeah. in, in that. Yeah. Mitchell, yeah. one of the um, beautiful things that you do in this book is you pay um, so much respect to your mother, mm-hmm. especially for the trials that she went through. And um, you're so clear faced about her battle with addiction mm-hmm. and that in some way, the culture in which you were raised, mm-hmm. addiction breeds a familiarity with drugs, breeds the ability to be a dealer as mm-hmm. you were, yeah. breeds the ability to say, this is the life that I was supposed to live. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to talk just a little bit for especially people who don't know your story mm-hmm. about that uh, geneal- that genealogy, if you would, how, how that all began. Yeah, well, uh, I think, you know, I would start it in the maybe 60s or 70s. Maybe you can go back to really the Vanport flood, in, at least in Portland, where the African-American community was displaced because of the flood and then moved into northeast Portland. Uh, and then the, the the early white flight of people who were already here, I think it was Scandinavians uh, mostly, that was in northeast Portland and then left when the black folks came. Uh, and then once it northeast Portland became a community for black people, then there's like, okay, so what are the kind of, what's the, what's the game plan for oppression, right? So it's yeah. like underfund the schools, mm-hmm. let crime run rampant, you know, mm-hmm. like allow the drugs to come in the community. So all of these things were happening all over the country and in Portland, in Northeast Portland. And uh, so if you already have that and then you have people who are struggling in other aspects of their life, then it makes it pretty easy to uh, for ad- addiction to flourish uh, and, you know, things that are criminalized. And so uh, my mother was, I guess you could say, an early adopter in that sense because she started using in the mid-1980s and crack didn't hit America until the 80s. Right. Um, and uh, you could see it in our community. Uh, you could see when people started like wandering around really late or really early and the way they look. Mm. Um, and we didn't really have, I didn't have precedent for it, right? So it, it took until like, I just knew things were strange that they it didn't look like this before. And then, you know, the movie started coming out where I would get to see what I would I would have signs of it. And so I saw that. And, um, you know, my mother struggled for many years with it. And uh, I think uh, at the same time, the the guys that were a little older than me started selling. And so I can remember uh, I remember specifically there were two. This is in in this time. They were like drug houses. Right. So someone would take over a house and kind of set up shop in there until someone, you know, police came and uh, raided it. Um, but I can remember where I can, like, if I close my eyes, I can remember where the drug houses were. Mm. And uh, and and just kind of watching that, but still not, you know, still kind of being insulated from it because I was also, you know, I was in the church choir at school, I mean, at, in, in church, and I went to Sunday school with my cousins and you know, I was at King getting, you know, the little sticker on your shirt when you get good grades. Wow. So all of these things were happening simultaneous. But around the, like, late 1980s, early 1990s, it, it became more attractive to me. And so I started uh, selling drugs for a little while and then ended up uh, going to prison for, uh, for selling when you, I was in college. You tell a story about um, at one point when you're dealing and there is a gun to the back of your head and you mm. recognize the voice. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, <laughs> man, this dude is going to be, uh, uh, he, well, I guess he has to have, you know, it's crazy because 
He has had such a profound effect on my life, and our moments of interaction are so few. Mm. Um, hmm. Like, if you counted the amount of time that we actually spent together, it might add up to four hours wow. or something. But um, the, the, the times when I thought, man, I'm going to, like, I could actually die in this moment, he's responsible. And if, if it happened four times in my life, he's definitely responsible for two of them. Um, and uh, and I tell listeners who he is. This is a guy whose street name is Stitches. I won't name his real name, though. He's doing a few life sentences, so it's not like he's coming home. But um, I think he was a, he's like the, the ultimate product of all of these, the confluence of all of those things that I was talking about, mm. right? Like what happens when you just give up and you give up and you also got a pistol and he, he is that guy. The words that he said to you in the back of your card mm. made you begin to think about race differently in, in the idea that is it a story that mm. we've told ourselves? Is it the assumption that we make about ourselves? Yeah. And in a really riveting TED Talk, you, you say we need to, to be colorless. Yeah, well, I, that would be, uh, I think that what I was saying was we need to invest or deconstruct both whiteness and we cannot deconstruct whiteness without deconstructing blackness because they're twins, mm. right? Like we have whiteness in America because of the need to oppress blackness. And so if we, we talk about we need to get rid of this and which I'm all for figuring out a way to kind of deconstruct it and for us to build a kind of national and individual identity that is not grounded in race. But then what does that happen to blackness, right? Mm. So um, I think... Uh, I don't I don't have the answer for that and I don't even actually know how you would do that but I do think it's like embedded in the language right when people talk about post race America we're actually both saying that race will never cease right how can we have post race America with the with race <laughs> in our definition of it yeah um so it's it's I mean I don't know I I throw that out to y'all what do you think mm-hmm. about post race America but calling it race I don't know. <laughs> I just, that's, it's really great that those are my first words yes. for this podcast is, I well, don't know. I, but I, I think that's everyone's I, uh, yeah. answer in terms of that well, question, to tell you the so truth. Well, it feels so large. The, the, the few things, and I don't know if this is right on the, right on the money about mm-hmm. the question, but, but one of the things that caught my ear when you were saying this was, mm-hmm. you said he is a product mm-hmm. of this confluence of all of these influences. Yeah. And that's very different than like, Stitches is the way Stitches is because Stitches is that way. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's this right. context yeah. that all of this happens in, and yep. that context informs how we are, and it also paints a story or a picture of what we can be. Yeah. And in the preparation for this conversation, we were mm-hmm. having some email exchanges, and it's like um, this idea of uh, s- some people, mm. either due to their socioeconomic status or the color of their skin, mm. are told you can be whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. And when you look around, uh, you can see people who look like you, mm-hmm. who represent models of like, oh yeah, I know one of those and mm-hmm. I know one of those and mm-hmm. I-, I could see myself doing that. Mm-hmm. And for other people, either because of their SES or the color of their skin or some other factor, mm-hmm. their gender, um, they're said, here's here's your path. Yeah. Here's your mm. here's your default right. uh journey through life yeah. and uh maybe if you're really lucky you can escape yeah, yeah you can escape the gravitational mm-hmm. pull of that yeah but there is this 
there's this default gravitational pull yeah. that you're trying to beat. And to me, that's what kind of kept coming back in my head when I was thinking about whiteness and blackness. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, actually, Brian, I think I think everybody's sold a story. Mm. I mean, I don't know that that white kids are sold the story. You can be whatever you want to be. They're sold the story. You can be all these really great things. Yeah. And then if maybe, maybe you're the exception, then you'll end up screwed up in this particular way. Yeah. And it's absolutely flipped mm. for more marginalized groups, whether that's right. African-Americans or, or non-binary folks or whatever yeah. it is. So For the white kid, it's exactly. what happened to you. And exactly. for the black kid, it's exactly. like, how'd you get out? Exactly. Yeah. That's 100%. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about the importance of men, and I love the, it's either an essay or a poem where you say, we need we need men. We need real men. We yeah. need men in our lives. And if you yeah. don't have one, you must find one and you yeah. must emulate the, the best man that you have. Who was mm. the best man in your life? Uh, mm, I don't know. Best man is, uh, I think, I try not to look at it in terms of best, but more in terms of like, what are the qualities that this person exemplifies that I might emulate? Uh, and so there are qualities in my grandfather, there are qualities in my stepfather, there are qualities in my father, my biological father, uncles. Um, and so that's really what I was doing is like p- pulling from places that I felt that I needed. And then obviously, you know, you hopefully gain a little wisdom, or at least a little more knowledge. And then you say like, oh, well, that one, I, maybe I need to put that one back. <laughs> yeah. Get this other thing. <laughs> that one didn't work out so well. I do that. I do that with men, Jackson. Yeah. So yeah. I, I know where you're coming from on that one. Yeah. You're like, that was on sale. I don't have to pay full price for this. <laughs> you know, um, getting back to your mom, who is just such a character, I love the story that you tell in your book about when she's going down to the plasma center. Yeah. And she, she's, she's obviously really, really brilliant. Mm-hmm. And you ask her something about what a patriot is. Yeah. Talk about that if you would. Yeah. So um, I was asking her because uh, the blood donation, uh, as w- as we know, it started during war efforts and, uh, you know, to provide blood for wounded uh, soldiers. And um, so I was I don't think even, I don't know if I even told my mother this context, but I asked her what, she, what her uh, definition of a patriot was and uh, just really on the fly she said that a patriot was like a like a mother um because you you a mother loves their child even if their child is wrong in some instances they like stand behind their children mm-hmm. and then she said that that's the same thing that uh like a a patriotic person does for their country right they love them even when they're not necessarily doing the right thing mm-hmm. uh and so i thought that that was really interesting the other uh kind of I guess, thesis that came out of that uh, essay was that the people who are most uh, marginalized in, 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 in America but also uh, maintain a sense of national pride are the most patriotic. Mm-hmm. So if we come mm-hmm. talking about like a super patriot, it's like a marginalized mm-hmm. group who manages to kind of work through all of that oppression to get to a place that they love their country. Mm. So are you asking people who read this book, are you asking black people mm. to become these kind of patriots? Is that what you're asking? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think this, this, this it, I mean, I'm 43. Too big, Sheila. <laughs> There's never been a, uh, uh, 
I don't think it's more, never been a greater challenge to people of color since I've been alive <laughs> <laughs> to like not be patriotic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, that is so awesome. <laughs> so I want to just ask you about uh, some things that have happened in pop culture. Okay. Um, and you know, Nike, your hometown yeah. company that grew up, it's supportive of Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Um, when you see this and yet you know, you know, Nike was there in your neighborhood and, and yeah. it has a difficult relationship yeah. with its own community. Right. Yeah. So how does that sit for you now? Um, you know, I remember uh, the first Nike store on MLK is where I got my first pair of Jordans, 84. Oh, it was so nice. Um, I think we really loved them then. Uh, I, I think Nike is, uh, I think they're learning, right? They're yeah. evolving like all kind of organisms. Uh, and I, I, pre- I think I appreciate the way in which they're evolving. I think that the Colin Kaepernick support was courageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also know they're a company, so I'm sure they did their due diligence on like, measuring what was going to be the effect, you know, what was the right time to make the announcement. Um, mm-hmm. So so I, I don't want to just be like, I don't want to kind of not be critical of it, but I also think it's still for a company, like, because you could do all the research and then, like, we did the research and thought, you know, Hillary was going to win. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then we didn't get that. So, like, the research is not always right. So That's I right. do still think it's, it's courageous on their part to support him in, in the way that they did. Not hmm. that made me actually feel really proud to be, you know, from Nike country. Yeah, no doubt. I was thinking about just even the the challenge that a company like Nike has in getting people of color to come work there because yeah. they say, where do I get my hair done? Yeah. Where is the commute? Where's the bars where I go? Where right. do I hang out? Like the, there's not this example back to your original question to yeah. Jenna about you know, why can we have both supremacists and liberals in the same place? We can't get more people here. Yeah. They don't come until mm-hmm. there are more people. It's mm-hmm. a it's an interesting chicken and the egg dilemma. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the we know where the uh, I guess the chicken was the exclusion law. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. You know, so yeah. so this is just the, the kind of historic uh, kind of play out of what the founders of this place we're in intended. Um, And I do think one of the things that I think about with the kind of Nike and the recruitment is that they're recruiting a higher economic class. You don't get recruited by a company to move places unless you're in a certain socioeconomic class, right? So, like, even if they come, they're still kind of in, in a certain way separated from the kind of people who have been economically and socially sh- struggling here. So that it's, it's harder to form a community when you have that kind of class stratification inside of the group. So That's so interesting. I, I, I don't know how you kind of bridge that gap, except to say maybe you all need to think about creating more opportunities for the people who are already struggling here to give them education. Yeah. And I'm sure these are programs that they already have in place, but yeah. maybe it needs to be more so that you actually bring the people up that are here because I'm sure there's a lot of great potential of people that are already here and they would probably get more kind of currency out of helping us actually reach those kind of, I mean, I have a friend uh, who's the head of Nike basketball, Yeah, you know, but like 
he's the only executive that I know <laughs> in Nike that grew up with me. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I think many companies are, are faced with this challenge right now. They, yeah. they actually don't want to, to deal with the old habits. They yeah. don't want to deal with the old paradigms. Yeah. And they are stuck in that you, 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 you don't win doing it other, either way, right? right? You've got to both attract the highest um, earners and the yeah. people with the most talent at the highest level. And you also have to have the programs to bring them out. So some sometime, hopefully, we meet in the middle yeah. where it's just... It's just a normal way of doing business. Yeah. So we talk on this program a lot about mental health. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know in most black communities, it's very, very rare for people to speak openly about mm-hmm. having mental health struggles. Yeah. And yet what you described, uh, especially with your mom, mm-hmm. it appeared to me that she was masking a lot of her her anxiety and her yeah. depression with drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't have the language for that at that moment. I mean, I could see... Uh, sadness. Um, I don't know if it was depression. I mean, now looking back, I can probably label it that, but I mean, we just don't, we don't have the language. I remember when we were growing up, like you, you would just dismiss someone as crazy, mm-hmm. right? Like, there was no, the language did not exist to say that this person has a mental health struggle. Right. Right. And I think that that is so important. And it's even why how I try to frame some of these conversations around race and class, it's like, how are, no, it's not, there are forces that, or maybe outside of their control that like put a person into this dilemma. Right. Right. And I think that the mental health community has been really good in kind of bringing that. And also I think like with uh, gender, I think that's also like the, the language is like evolving um, in, in those communities much more than it is in uh, I think in, in, in terms of like race and class. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, there's another person I write about in in the files um, who struggles with uh, schizophrenia, right? And that's something that, you know, we would have been kind of dismissive of in the 1980s, me being the people in my community who just didn't know any better, right? right? We didn't have that kind of language. We weren't studying that. And now, you know, me, like I, I, I know a very... Uh, uh, famous, mm, famous is the right word. Very successful writer who also struggles with schizophrenia, and I was like, wow, like how, mm-hmm. how does he? Do? I didn't even know that that was possible that right, you could live right. like manage it in that way, right. and still be, you know, uh, uh, achieve prosperity in your life and success. And so, um, really, I guess I should be thanking you all for like giving us that kind of language. <laughs> well, that's very gracious of you. I'm not sure. Uh, being on the inside of the mental health uh, uh, world of things, I'm not sure that we've done that great of a job. I think one of the things that traditional psychology, psychiatry has done mm-hmm. is used mental health struggles, and I love how you call it that, mental health struggles. We've, right. we've used it as another way to other people. Mm. So we talk about it as yeah, but they have a disease or they have an mm. illness mm. and mm-hmm. as opposed to how you described it, which mm. is kind of more in line with how I might approach it. Mm. There are external factors that yeah. are influencing, that are kind of creating these struggles for mm. people. And so, of course, some of those factors have to do with genetics, mm-hmm. but a lot of those factors have to do with our external context of yeah. things and things like access to good uh, healthcare, mm-hmm. access to other resources, all sorts of other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Years and years ago, decades now probably ago, mm-hmm. I, I would sometimes say that we either normalize or we pathologize normalcy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so right. it's like a legitimate struggle, but 
it's fine, it's fine, it's no big deal. Yeah. Or uh, we take the common struggles of life uh-huh. and say like, well, I'm upset, I'm not thrilled, mm-hmm. so something's wrong, so I need a pill. Right. You know, so we pathologize normalcy. And now I'm sort of like, what if it's just normal to be pathological? And then it's not pathological, yeah. it's just normal to struggle. Yeah. You know, and why wow. do we have to make this distinction? Why why do we have to say there's this um, categorical difference between, say, sadness uh-huh. and depression? Right. Yeah. It's like, I'm really sad. And it is uh, the way that I'm carrying it yeah. and experiencing it interferes with my ability to move around in the world the way I want. Mm-hmm. Period. End of paragraph. Well, not we can keep talking, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the thought. Like, right. that we and don't thanks need, for we joining don't... us today. Yeah, <laughs> Brian has just ended the show. Mic drop. <laughs> period. End of paragraph. Yeah. We keep writing. Just, right. But that idea of like, why, why make that, that really strong distinction? Mm-hmm. But Mitchell, even what you were saying mm-hmm. about your writer friend who struggles with schizophrenia mm-hmm. and you having this story, like, oh, people with schizophrenia can't be successful writers. Yeah. Like that's right. part of how we other people. Yeah. Like yeah. that's that's the same story as, oh, wow, I didn't know like a black kid growing up right. in like inner Northeast could be, you know, the executive of Nike or something right. like that. Yeah. So, so part of the problem is, is that when these labels start to define our expectations of people, mm. I think that's super problematic. And yeah. one of the things I really appreciate about your work and I see it actually even in the cover of your of um, survival math mm-hmm. um, I think about it as like this idea of a tapestry like a story mm-hmm. being this interwoven of all these like men yeah. in your life mm-hmm. and I'm sure women and yeah. all, all sorts of other people yeah. but seeing it as this very rich complex, story as opposed to the story of, oh, this is what it means to be a schizophrenic or a black man or a white woman. Or have depression or have anxiety. I want to talk about this amazing quote. It bothers me that concern about blacks in America is topical, that our lives count most when we're murdered or commit some headline crime. It troubles me that our worth is measured against what white people in power care about on a given day, week, month. The stories Mm. of my people are evergreen. Yeah. Oh, mm. been Let doing your just... research, huh, Sheila? Oh, That's boom. an interview. Oh, man. <laughs> I swear you're writing. Well, first of all, just the whole, <laughs> I think that you speak to how um, how ripe this situation mm-hmm. is and how every one of us feel urgent need to fix it mm-hmm. and yet how powerless we all are. Yeah. I feel so powerless except mm-hmm. just to say, I love you mm. as the entire being that you are and everything you. you bring. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. When you talk about it, and it is so true that it's topical, it's headline driven, it's, mm. you know, Black Lives Matter, everybody going to the march. Well, yeah, maybe Sunday, but not two months from now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do we do about it? Mm. That's a really good question. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think uh, I, I'll tell you what I see my job is. You know, like you start thinking about the big problem, you're like you, you get nowhere. But I was, I was actually, I was asking myself earlier today, like, why am I doing this? Like, what do I want to get out of this? Um, and I think what I want to do is create more me's. And 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 when I say that, I mean I want to create more people who like question the system. Hmm. Right. To like evolve and to question it and then to figure out 
like which question am I going to dedicate to? Because you can't you can't dedicate to all of the questions, mm-hmm. but like I think you can figure out at some point like okay, this is my concern, and I'm like going to commit to this. Um, and then also, you never stop even questioning, you know, why you're already engaged in that in that kind of commitment. And I think at least for the people in my community who I'm most familiar with, I think we stopped asking questions about why. And we just started saying, how can I get around this? Right. Like, I understand that the this is this is the world. And I'm like, OK, so what am I going to do? Right. OK, I can't go get a job. So but I can go do this. Right. But we don't we don't say like, well, how what's the historical context uh, of hmm. me not being able to get a job? And I think that broadens your perspective, which is hard to do when you're caught up in it. You know, you like, it like it's easier for me to do it now with like health insurance and a yep. teaching salary. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, but I, I do think like if you can't see the, the the beginning and the kind of scope of it, then it's harder to like navigate the circumstances. So uh, put the question in your head, kind of c- commit to that and then like keep trying to recontextualize like how we got to this beautiful, place. beautiful mm-hmm. answer. You guys want to add anything to that? Because I, I <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I just you had said in this uh, Baldwin quote, you mm. open with it that man who is forced each day to snatch his manhood, his mm. identity out of the fire of human cruelty that rages to destroy it knows mm. if he survives his effort and even if he does not survive it, something about himself and human life that no school on earth and indeed no church can teach. Yeah. You're saying we ourselves have got to be the teachers. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Yeah. Just beautiful. The thing that I was thinking about this business of um, the topic of race and when it shows up and in response to, you know, uh, African-American kid getting shot by cops or something Mm. like that. Uh, There's an article written a number of years ago by a psychologist named Stephen Hayes, Mm -hmm. and and he suggested that um, empathy for all of us Mm -hmm. is hardwired. Like it's wired in that we hurt when we see other people hurt. Mm. And especially when uh, we see them as part of our tribe. I yeah. mean, we, we, we evolved in bands and tribes and the good of the people in my tribe mm-hmm. was the good for me. Like if yeah. you survive and you're in my tribe, mm-hmm. then that's good for me. But if I see your pain and I feel it like it's my pain, mm-hmm. if I don't know how to sit with that pain and mm-hmm. do something constructive with it, yeah. the solution for that is to make you other. Is to okay. is to describe you in a way, or to think of you in a way, so that you and I aren't alike. Because mm-hmm. then you're not in my tribe, right. and then I don't have to hurt as much. Mm. And this is racism, it's homophobia, mm-hmm. it's lack of concern for people who don't have health care, the poor. Yeah. That if I can somehow say like, this has like your otherness makes you different than me, mm-hmm. and then the kicker is if I can somehow blame you for the pain that you have. Right that it's on you because of your otherness, I relieve myself of my pain. And so he suggests we can't afford to do that in this big, modern, Mm. broad world. We can't afford to to silo ourselves from each other. It's not like that. So the solution is we have to figure out how to be more open with the pain we experience and then do something constructive with it. Mm. It's so beautiful. That uh, connects to, uh, I can't remember the, 
think it's reading uh, when I write in, I think it's American Blood, where I was talking about a nation, and it says that what binds a nation is shared suffering mm. yeah. more than mm-hmm. like shared uh, like uh, good things happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you asked in the beginning how in Portland, Oregon, white supremacists and liberals could be both flourishing. Yeah. And I think that what Brian is yeah. talking to really illuminates that point mm-hmm. that because uh, we get really comfortable in mm-hmm. the in these groups with and we and we don't understand those people. I'm going to talk about white supremacists mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. I think they're really uh, rigid and uneducated, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to even attempt to understand their way. Yeah. Well, that doesn't do us any good. Right, yeah. Like it, it keeps us apart, mm-hmm. othering. I'm othering them, just as as you talk about that. And and I honestly have thought one of the worst examples of that is when the two sides coalesce down in the parks mm-hmm. and stand there shouting at each other. Yeah. Like I keep thinking, are we ever really going to have listening opportunities mm-hmm. to understand what the rigid paths of learning that these white supremacists were on to make them still continue to believe this? Yeah. It's the only hope I think we have. Well, uh, you know, there's rationale and there's reasoning, right? So, Rationale is like I hold this conclusion and I'm going to develop a kind of flawed logic to reach this conclusion. So anything. So like those people don't deserve to live. I need a rationale right. to develop. Uh-huh. But that's different from reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. Where you like you examine the facts, you, you know, you apply knowledge to it, mm-hmm. right? You apply compassion. So I mean, yes, I do think that there needs to be some kind of dialogue, but like some things just don't stand up to reason. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like yeah. it's hard mm-hmm. to like try to apply reasoning to people who are rationalizing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. It's fascinating. So in your mind, when there's something that's so clearly wrong, it's yeah. immoral yeah. that, that at, at this point, would you say we just don't continue a dialogue? We just do what we've done, which uh-huh. is essentially move them out until they die. No, I don't I don't think you can do that. What I'm saying is I think the the difficulty is when you're trying to apply reasoning to people who are rationalizing. Mm-hmm. Like that to mm-hmm. me they're parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I don't know how you maybe it's a chasm that you can't bridge. Mm-hmm. I would hope that somehow there can happen, but like I think that's the thing is like to me this is like clear rationalizing, mm-hmm. right? Like if you just say like uh what is it King that said like the ultimate Says the ultimate telos of racism is genocide. Mm-hmm. That these people don't deserve to live. You can't defend that with reasoning. Right. Right. No. So like if if someone is a committed racist, that cannot like you can't apply reason to that. Right. So then how what is the dialogue that you have with someone who you cannot reason right. with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And so then maybe the question becomes what produced that? Yeah, yeah. That might be Let's the, not do that again. Yeah, exactly. Like that—that's that might be the point yeah. of intervention yeah. there. Yeah. Right. Saying, okay, we got to figure out how that happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. Where does the where does the misunderstanding come from? Where does the anger come from? Where yeah. does the hatred come from? And I think that's when the the article that I cited mm-hmm. about looking at empathy. Um, empathy and that that it's like if I cannot sit with my pain. Mm-hmm then my solution is to other you. And then the extreme version of that is this racism or homophobia or whatever. Uh, In that article, I believe there was a a citation of a study where they said that that, um, prejudice towards Jews goes up, not down, Mm -hmm. as you understand 
the suffering that they experienced mm-hmm. um, in the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. That it's like I hear more pain, mm-hmm. and it's like that doesn't that you would think that that would be like oh god that's terrible. Yeah. We do have this oh god that's terrible, mm-hmm. but there's also this underlying like actually racism towards Jews goes up, mm-hmm. not. Down. My my hunch, I don't know anything about the study. Mm-hmm. My hunch is because people are fearful of it. I don't want that to happen to me. Mm-hmm. They must have done something yeah. that they that they became victims of that. Indeed, they are other. My hunch is just it's so frightening to believe that that can actually happen to people. And so we all want to protect ourselves by saying, well, that won't ever happen to me. Yeah. And I mean, just as humans are hardwired to be empathic when we see um, somebody as in our tribe, mm-hmm. we're also incredibly evolved to avoid pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if the way that I can avoid pain is saying, well, this happened to them because they're that way and I'm, I'm not that, that way, right. yeah. then I don't have to feel that pain. Yeah. I, I think that actually gets down to some of what we've been speaking about with with how many black men are in prison, how many are arrested, how much how rudely out of control those statistics are, mm-hmm. is that people in there wanting to say, well, they must have done something mm-hmm. because they can't believe that that could happen to them. They can't believe that they could just be driving down a road and be pulled over for nothing. So they immediately jump to, well, they must have done something wrong, mm. right? It's almost like a protective mechanism for people. Well, I mean, and in our country, it probably isn't going to happen to them. Mm. Like, right. like there actually are systems set up <laughs> such yeah. that yeah, exactly. like, right. it, yeah. it is going to happen to the black man driving the car and it's not going to happen yeah. to me and my, you know, the white woman driving yeah. my car yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. So. My thing, you know, now with the social media that you and I are still figuring out, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> that it's, it's, it's near impossible <laughs> for a person to plead ignorance. Mm-hmm. Right, like right, right. You look yeah. at the views on uh, uh, Philandro Castillo. You mm-hmm. listen to the, the the how many people have heard the tape of Trayvon. Yeah. Trayvon, like, yeah. There's millions and millions and millions of people watching this trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Like. You, you can't plead that anymore. I mean, yeah. maybe, you no. know, in 1955, you didn't listen to the radio, but, like, that's over. Yeah. That's but right. here's the thing. Not only can we not plead ignorance, we're, we get way more info. We also get way more pain. Yeah. We're exposed true. to so much more suffering. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think probably in the average day, uh, if you're on social media and you've got the television on, you're probably exposed to more news than your grandparents experienced in a month mm-hmm. or, or a year. And yeah. at the same time, we are bombarded even more and more with this story of like, if you suffer, that means there's something wrong with you. Like there's mm-hmm. this beautiful Bell Hooks quote about um, kind of this myth, the greatest myth that we are told is that those who suffer are the unvaluable ones and that Mm. the more that you suffer, the less valuable you are. Mm. And we're sold this story that if you suffer, there's something wrong with you. Mm. And so here we get bombarded with all of this suffering Mm. and we're told, oh my God, we're not supposed to be suffering. Right. I think that's such a wonderful place to leave it because if anything that you uh, really did so beautifully mm. is that you really plumbed the suffering. Yeah. 
Yeah. of your family, of your ancestors, of your own story, and yeah. what a triumph you've come up with. Thanks. Mitchell, it's so great to see you. I hope the Thank pals you. will be packed. I'll be there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the fangirl at the back. Yeah, Survival it. math notes on an all-American family. Mitchell S. Jackson, uh, memorize this name. He is going to be so big. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah thanks, Thank man. you.